today on episode number 151 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Kristen Eshelman explores meaningful measures of accountability. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak. And this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, I'm thrilled to be welcoming to the show Kristen Eshelman. She's the Director of Digital Innovation at Davidson College, and she leads an R&D initiative focused on the design and research of experiments that explore new models of a liberal arts education in the digital age. R&D provides a safe-to-fail space where risk-taking is encouraged, and design-based research informs Davidson's digital strategy. The anthropologist in her is drawn to the intersections between technology and culture. Kristen's current pedagogical interests include learner agency, digital scholarship, inclusive pedagogy, and mindfulness in contemplative learning. Kristen, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Bonnie. We just got to know a little bit about you in terms of professionally, but I wonder if you would share a little bit about your family, because I always think it's fun to get to know someone beyond the professional bio. Yeah, sure. I'd be, I'd be happy to. I am married to a librarian who actually informs a lot of my thinking in areas around information literacy and special concepts and and how we collaborate more effectively across technology and information. We've been married 22 years, and we have a daughter we adopted from China in 2005, who is now 12, going on 24. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she is, she is wonderful. She is the, the greatest gift to us, and just um, giving us such a, a different way of looking at the world, thinking about identity, what it means to be a parent, obviously, but what it means to be a minority in a predominantly white culture in ways that we just never would have experienced uh, without having her in our lives. And so it's been a a really great journey. And what are some of the, and if she's 12, I suspect during that time of life, you're maybe noticing even more surprises in terms of those cultural differences, anything that's come up recently? Well, and not recently, but, but about the time that she entered third or fourth grade, our eyes were really opened to structural racism in a way that we hadn't, we just didn't see because we didn't have that shared experience. But she was in a predominantly white school in our community uh, until we moved her to a predominantly minority school in Charlotte, in part to participate in what's called a talent development uh, program for gifted students. And when she moved from the one environment, the predominantly white environment, into a predominantly minority environment, she became a completely different student. Um, We saw a child who was lacking in confidence suddenly blossom uh, in a completely different space. And through conversations with her and trying to understand and unpack why that was different, uh, we began to notice that she 
had spent the first few years in elementary school noticing that kids who looked different were getting treated negatively. Whether or not that was intentional, it just happened. And she saw that and decided to fly under the radar for those first few years, which Mm -hmm. manifested in this lack of confidence. And we just never would have expected that. So as soon as she moved into the majority-minority school, she was comfortable. She was confident. Uh, it was a completely different experience for her, and and her whole approach to learning was was just com- it was transformed uh, in a way that's been remarkably positive. And so I I think about that a lot about kids who are minorities and majority um, white schools and and what they what they do to fly under the radar and how heartbreaking that is. And I, I don't think it's obvious to to everyone there, but it it does happen, and that was really eye opening for us. Mm, thanks for sharing that experience and, and also for sharing a little bit about your family. It always makes me feel a little bit like I, I know you better now. And, and now we're going to get to go back to the professional stuff, which there's okay. yeah some, some interesting tensions there as well, although, although not anywhere near as um, graphic as your daughter's. I'm so glad that she got into a better environment. That's wonderful. Us too. It was great. Well, we were connected with a former guest, Laura Gozia. And she really thought that it would be helpful to have you talk a little bit about this blog post you wrote a year ago. And it was amazing to me thinking about how much has probably even changed since then. So I was so excited to get you on the show. And the blog post is called Exploring Meaningful Measures of Accountability. And we'll be linking to that as well as all the resources that we talk about today at teachinginhighered.com slash one. 51. And let's start with what should be basic, but I know isn't. <laughs> what are some of the types of learning that are more challenging for us to measure? Yeah, so in my experience, and I think this is a shared experience for those of us in the higher ed who support teaching and learning, it tends to be in the humanities. It tends to be in these spaces where you don't have an obvious answer, where it's not clear what the linear steps are to achieve a, a specific mastery. Um, it really is dispositional in many ways and exploratory. Uh, and, and those are the courses where it, you know, it's, it's hardest, even from a support perspective, to be able to do research in that space, to be able to support faculty in trying new things and teaching and learning and evaluating the effectiveness of those things. It's tricky and it's challenging, yet we all know from experience in those courses that they can be some of the most rewarding and some of the most transformational that's where my mind tends to go when I'm asked that question about things that are hardest to measure, it tends to go to, to the humanities. I know another type of learning environment that you talk about is one that's more of an exploratory type of a structure. Could you share a little bit about that or any examples you think of when we talk about exploratory learning? Yeah, and I was, I was thinking about courses where students really are given a bit of an open-ended approach to to learning. So you might be reading the same thing as a class, but you also have a bit of freedom to go out and find other bits of information that add to that learning and bring that back into the classroom. And that's very unstructured. And that's what I meant by exploratory. Those kinds of courses where you're given a bit of agency in the way you approach understanding the material. It's not a textbook, for example. Um, Those are the ones that come to mind to me first. I shared recently on the podcast that my jobs changed a little bit at my institution, and I got the neat experience of being able to pick any class that I wanted to teach this fall, and I chose to do a special topic, so it's going to be a personal leadership and productivity class, which is a lot of just trying to gear our seniors who are going to be graduating up for 
how no one's going to really give them a syllabus anymore that'll have due dates and assignments. It's not going to be structured that way. And one of the things I'll be teaching them is called personal knowledge management. And I've shared before about it on the podcast. I'll link to some episodes, but it's essentially just this idea that so many of us already do, which is going out and seeking information and making sense of it as you did in your blog post around measures of accountability and then sharing it out as you did in your blog post. And I'm going to do that very thing that you just described, which would be, I'm not going to tell them what their personal knowledge management system should look like. They're going to have to talk about an area that they're interested in and that they'll be committed to seeking and making sense of, and then sharing throughout the semester. So that's always a you know, a harder thing than, as you said, to try to grade something like that, because everyone's is going to look different. In fact, that's kind of the purpose of it. But it's sometimes a little bit too easy because we stop here and go, oh, well, learning's hard to measure. And especially if you start to do more exploratory learning and how powerful that can be. So I guess we should just give up then, right? And don't even try to measure anything. But that's not where you say we, we should stop. So <laughs> my question for you is, what types of learning should we make sure that we really are challenging ourselves to measure as institutions and also just as individual professors? Yeah, that's a great question, um, and it, it does speak directly to that tension and that tendency, I think, in dialogue to go to that binary, right, to, <laughs> yeah. to say everything either everything has to be outcomes-based and measurable, and that's what counts, and we should be held accountable just in those terms, or, well, the you know, transformational learning can't be measured, and, and therefore we shouldn't do any measurement at all. That does tend to happen, and we're where I saw this manifest most recently is in our accreditation process and going through that. And it was, it was remarkable. It struck me that it was the first time in my 15 years at Davidson uh, that I had seen everyone at the institution be in agreement that we don't like this process. Mm. <laughs> and it's rare that we're in agreement on anything uh, <laughs> across the board. And that struck me as a, as a opportunity, right. To, to maybe engage the campus in thinking about, or people on campus in thinking about, if we all hate it, why do we hate it? And are there ways we could be accountable toward the things we value most? Uh, and so I, you're looking at the accreditation process, it's, it seems to be going down this path of uh, increased focus on outcomes measurement, uh, outcomes-based assessment. And you'll see this with talk in Silicon Valley around you know, how to reimagine and disrupt higher education with the Department of Education, with politicians introducing bills to that effect, and all of this in response to really a need that needed to be addressed, which is these for-profit colleges that are not living up to what they promised and taking advantage of students. Uh, but then you start to lump the entire higher ed sector into that argument and that discussion to a fault, I think. Uh, and that's what was concerning me, is if we're, if we're going to double down on outcomes-based assessment, are we going to end up designing learning for only the things that can be measured. And if we do that, what do we lose? Uh, and that's the thing that frightened me the most. At the same time, I don't think you can sit back and say, well, it can't be measured, therefore we shouldn't measure it, or measuring it in any way is somehow cheapening the experience. I do think we have to be accountable uh, to our students. I mean, they're spending a lot of money uh, on an education these days, and we need to be able to show them the value of what they're doing over these four years. And I'm very interested in new models that might be able to bridge that gap between what is difficult to measure uh, and what is, is easy to measure in outcomes-based assessment, which is how I came to 
that particular blog post that you're referencing and the methodology of sense making that might get us there, that might bridge that gap between qualitative and quantitative research in an interesting way and one that tends to look more at the complex domain of learning. Why don't you then introduce us to this framework that can help us kind of wrap our heads around learning when it's within this complex domain that you're describing? Yeah, so the framework that I'm talking about is called the Kinevin framework, and it's a framework that I'm not an expert in by any means, but was one that was introduced to me as I was starting to develop an R&D innovation space at Davidson. Uh, and this is really, it's interesting, it's a 2007 article in Harvard Business Review that talks about how to make decisions in different domains. Uh, and the four domains that they talk about are uh, what, what they call obvious or simple, uh, complicated is the second one, complex is the third, and then chaotic is that fourth domain. Uh, and within these, you just have to figure out, that, you know, as you're developing your learning, your curricula, whatever it is you're wanting to assess or evaluate, at which point are you in which domain and being able to identify the work that you're doing in the proper domain. Once you have it in the proper domain, it's easier to decide what kind of assessment you should be doing or ways of evaluating that work. Uh, and, and I think what's happening is we are applying the complicated uh, assessment measures to what is really a complex environment. And the difference between those two would be complicated is, is basically you, have, you know what all of the parts are and you know what the outcome is supposed to be and how to get there. And it's really just a complicated set of linear ordered steps to achieve that. And you can think about the analogy of building a, a bridge or a building. Um, these are known entities and you know how to get there, but it is complicated and it takes an expert to get you there. And so that's a certain kind of measurement that works. Outcomes-based assessment works in that domain. But in the complex domain, it's emergent. Um, it is not known. So the future state is unknown. There are no outcomes that you can predefine. And so measuring against that doesn't make sense. So how do you begin to account for that? And what interests me is there is this method and tool coming out of the folks who developed the Kinevin framework that helps you assess and evaluate and manage within that domain. So that took me down this path of, you know, what is complexity and complexity science and complexity theory? What is this thing that, that they're talking about? Um, which is a relatively new science that I'm just starting to sink my teeth into. It was developed uh, by, I believe it was economists that originally came to this. Brian Arthur is the name that comes to mind, and also physicists in particular. But multiple disciplines looking at a new science that sits at the, the integrative points, like in between the disciplines, is there a science that sits in those spaces? And they've been working on this since the late 70s, early 80s. The Santa Fe Institute uh, is really the mecca for understanding complexity science and uh, complex adaptive systems. But if you look at the way they describe complex adaptive systems, you, really higher education and higher education institutions in my mind, not perfectly to that kind of system, yet we're, we're looking at applying a complicated assessment tool to evaluate the work that we do. And so it's a misalignment uh, in my mind. Uh, and so that's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about the you know, tools and methods that can begin to make sense of the complex domain of learning, that difficult to measure, emergent, open, constantly changing space. What does that look like and how do we make decisions in that space? Can you give me an example of 
the complex, maybe a, an assessment measure or some sort of attempt that you have made to, to try to quantify this? And, and maybe this might introduce us to sense making. Yeah, that would be the tool. Uh, and that's the only one that I've looked at so far. And we've only run one study that I would classify as less rigorous than it needed to, than it should have been. Mm. So we're doing a second research design now, uh, working with Laura, actually, which is how she, I think, introduced this concept um, to you. Uh, Laura is bringing a rigorous lit review and education research lens on the design of the instrument that we're using. So what it is, is a, it's a method, but it's also a tool uh, that looks at storytelling, that looks at the stories of individuals in real time as they're making sense of their environment. It's anthropological. I mean, this is, this is common in anthropology that storytelling is a way of making sense of your culture. So if we can capture those, if we can capture those water cooler stories that are you know, at the forefront of students' minds and faculty's minds and staff minds in an institution, can we begin to make sense of our culture in real time and manage and react as needed based on what we're seeing? And the goal of it is not, again, remember the outcomes are unknown. Mm. So the goal of sense-making is not to design an instrument that tells us an answer to a specific question. It's designed to indirectly pull the stories from individuals in real time in the context we're interested in studying. So in our case, right now, we're interested in studying what it means to be inclusive. You know, how do students feel a sense of belonging at Davidson? And so we're, we're using the literature to design the instrument based on those concepts, the concepts that come out of the academic research. But the tool itself is, is designed with prompts and signifiers that intentionally try to pull out the weak signals. So that if you're someone who's contributing a story, you have no idea where this is going. Why are they giving me this survey? Where's this really headed? You know that it's a study about inclusivity, but you don't have any way of gaining or gifting the results. And that's what's very unique about this tool. It is designed to get at the weak signals. What do we not know? What can we not see about our culture, about our organization, about our institution at this point in time? And so this fascinates me. It's been used in counterterrorism efforts quite successfully. It's been used in healthcare, uh, understanding patient care experiences. Uh, and mm. it's, it, the stories that are coming out, if you go to their website, you can see the case studies. But the stories that are coming out are really thinking about human systems and how you begin to design those for optimal, optimal emergence, right? If, if your goal of your human system is to allow for emergence, which it is, how do you design it so that you're not dampening the possibility for emergence, that you're actually optimizing um, that possibility? And so that's, that's where, what we're interested in learning. It's, it's very early. For us, so I don't have results to share until probably mid to late summer. But it's also designed to be an action tool. So as you're getting this information in real time, you can act on it. You can start to put in into play experiments that, that nudge in a certain direction. You'll see patterns of stories that are falling within the zone of what you would consider optimal answers, optimal responses. And you look at the patterns of those stories to understand what's happening here and how can we amplify those experiences? How can we dampen the ones that are problematic? Uh, so it's a very interesting tool. I wonder if we can take your example of attempting to quantify in some way what it means to be inclusive. If we tried to gauge inclusivity using tools that would land in the obvious or simple quadrant, what would that look like? 
Yes, yeah, sort of an assumed definition, right? You assume belonging means X, and and therefore your design should be Y, and where does it fall on this Likert scale? Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting about this this tool and method is it's kind of a response to the shortcomings of qualitative research. Mm-hmm. It's looking at things like Likert scales and focus groups and interviews and removing, or not really removing, but trying to lessen the bias of the researcher. So the way it's designed, uh, the researcher puts together the instrument, but the respondent, the person telling the story, is the person who puts the meaning on it. And so you give a, an answer to a story prompt, and it may be something as indirect as, in our case, we're asking students, you know, if you were talking to a close friend or a relative about attending Davidson, what story would you tell to encourage them to apply? What mm-hmm. story would you tell to discourage them to apply? And then they tell a story. They give it a title, and the title is often the most revealing <laughs> first point of signification. Mm-hmm. Um, and many times when I've looked at the results, I'm often surprised by the title. I'd read the response one way and think they were going in a certain direction and see that their title was going in a completely different direction, which is interesting. That's when you start to see your own biases in, in your analysis of their, of their answers. And then they go through a set of what are called signifiers, that make meaning of that story in multiple layers. It's difficult to explain without seeing it visually. But the point of it is they do not put that meaning-making in, in my hands. They, we put it in their hands. So it empowers individuals to, to tell us what the story means. Uh, and then we get those in, in aggregate. We're able to quantify those stories and visualization using something like Tableau. So we start to see the patterns that emerge. Um, and that's the quantification piece. But it's, it, it really is more of a response to poor, poorly, I guess is the word they would use, poorly designed qualitative studies for that particular domain. But, yeah, I think to answer your question, uh, I hadn't thought about how inclusivity in a simple or complicated domain might be measured. But I can imagine a lot of presumptions about what it means to belong in an institution um, based on your own experience or you know, your lived experience or based on the research and applying that to uh, a survey or an interview situation or a focus group situation, and then you're getting a set of results that you would expect to get. Um, in the complex domain, you're not going to get that. You're going to get the things you're not expecting, and it should reveal structural issues that are a bit unknown. Yeah, that, this you said it was intriguing to you, and it really is to me too, because I think of the other ways I might just attempt to measure something like that would have so many of my inherent biases built into it. And so I'm sure that that's the case when, when using the wrong part of that domain to, to try to measure something as complex. Yeah, or, as or, or even another way might be that you're narrowing it to the classroom experience, which is nine times out of 10 where, where we would head mm. uh, down this path is what's happening in the classroom that makes a student feel less included or not belonging not really recognizing that there are probably a lot of other things happening, um, you know, personally happening on campus, uh, structurally in the system that we're not seeing. They're getting in the way of a student feeling a sense of belonging. And it could be something very, very simple. And we just wouldn't notice it. We wouldn't connect the dots. We would think in the classroom, how we're teaching, any microaggressions, the sort of standard literature on inclusivity. But what are we missing? Uh, and an example that I would point to is one that Dave Snowden talks about frequently when he's giving 
uh, lectures on the Canadian framework and on sense making, and that is a deployment in Australia of British forces uh, was having an unusually high number of retention issues. So people were leaving the force much earlier than they would have expected. There was something going on that was problematic in this particular deployment, but they were assuming it was a leadership issue. Uh, and so they pulled in sensemaker folks to take a look at what was happening and to see the stories that emerged. And it ended up being something as simple as a procurement problem and not getting the trains in in time. And so the stories that you were kidding had titles like, why do we have to crack at a hole under a tree? And that is not at all what they were expecting. Mm-hmm. So getting those, those, those weak signals can sometimes be the difference between a student feeling a sense of belonging and not, and we're going down the wrong path, assuming, you know, it's a, it's a set of steps that we need to follow in the classroom. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes so much sense. And it, and I'm, I just can't stop thinking about how I'm sure I do stuff like this all the time, all the time. And just how this, 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 this frees us from that, that trap that we can set for ourselves. Well, and I think there's value in doing that too. The, the, the reason we're looking at it is not to replace anything that we're currently doing, but to add another layer of data mm-hmm. to the problem to say, you know, is there something here? There may not be anything, but it, it's worth, we think, an exploration to see, you know, we're going to go down the regular path of research and, and see what we learn in inclusivity studies in the classroom. But let's try this other layer too and see what we maybe are missing. Yeah. Well, before we get to the recommendation segment, I don't want to miss out on hearing about any projects that you haven't mentioned yet that would be helpful for us as we start to think about these tensions between trying to measure things and then those things that can't be measured. And if there's anything extra you can share with us about your work. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I really came to this because I'm moving into an R&D innovation space at Davidson. I'm, I'm launching this with friends and colleagues at the um, campus. It's a way of accounting for exploration and innovation. That's how I initially came to this. And so one of the projects that we're working on for the fall is one that I think would resonate on a lot of campuses. And I'll talk a little bit about the process and how we got there. But the way we're thinking about R&D is, is really beginning to look at questioning our value assumptions about um, what we offer to students, what we offer to faculty, uh, the things that we assume we are doing, are we really doing? How do we begin to chip away at that a little bit and really turn that inquiry back on ourselves? The way we launched this, this whole initiative was to put out a set of questions to faculty staff, I'm sorry, faculty, students, and alumni um, that were asking them to tell us a story about their experiences. In the case of alumni and students, we were asking them to reflect on their education, um, either to date or in the past, and answer the question of what it is they always wanted to do but weren't able to do and why, and tell us that story. And of our faculty, we asked, you know, when you think about the student experience at Davidson and your teaching, what is it you've always wanted to do but weren't able to do and why? And then they told us a set of stories. So I had four faculty members pitch four very different stories, each of them pushing back on structural constraints at the college around, you know, time and space and content even. And so they, one of them was interested in questioning this uh, design of having to teach three days a week for 50-minute blocks. Mm. Is that really good pedagogy? Why do we do that? <laughs> I mean, we know why we do it, but is there another way? And, and what would we learn from doing it another way that, that might inform a new design? Uh, another faculty member wanted to push against the classroom constraints. Why do I have to be in this 
place-based teaching. Why can't I you know, get my students into immersive place-based learning and over periods of time during the semester? And that was an American cultural studies class. How can we be out there in the field learning? Why are we stuck in this classroom? Uh, and then the other two were interested in a similar topic of imposter syndrome and wanting to push back on domain expertise and teaching to see where the value might lie in learning something together for the first time. And that's a little, it reminds me a little bit about what you just talked about at the beginning with this new course you're designing and a way of thinking about teaching that really interested me, which is not me understanding what you know. Like, I don't need to know what you already know. I can go read your stuff. You know, I can watch your lectures. I want to know how you struggled to get there. Can you convey that process to me as a student? And so these two faculty members were interested in doing that. How can we teach a course we don't have domain expertise in, but, but can model? You know, bringing deep, disciplined PhD thinking to this process and model that for students, which I just thought was great. But in order for them to do it, for each of them to do this, uh, with the exception of the imposter syndrome, one, they really needed each other because trying to push against time and space constraints is really difficult if, if you're not able to do that in the context of the rest of what you're teaching and what the department needs and all of those structures that are in place. And so they're cohorting a group of 16 students to, st- to, to start in the fall. These are incoming first-year students. And they're designing what we're calling kind of a boot camp into the liberal arts. Um, you know, how do, we, how do we have these 16 students learn in community? How do we have them integrate knowledge across these four disciplines? And how do we get them to really take ownership of their learning process so that by the end of it, they are being very intentional about the next three and a half years at Davidson? Um, and so I'm really fascinated with where this is going to go. And is any of this documented on your website so people can read more about it, or is it all still emergent and we'll have to be patient to see what happens? <laughs> it's a little of the latter. We have notes that we have internally, but we haven't published any of these. The designs are still underway. The general design is, is in place, but each of the individual courses is still working out its design, and, uh, and we're you know, figuring out who do we bring in. You know, we know what we want design thinking to be part of this. This, you know, some things to sort of wrap around the entire experience, the group facilitation, what it means to learn in a group, all that you know, storming, forming, norming that happens that, that needs to happen, needs to be guided. Who do we bring in to work on that? Who do we bring in to work on design thinking? You know, we're still putting all these, these aspects of the experience together. But we should have it uh, published and, and out there, at least a, a skeleton of what we're doing uh, this summer. Oh, that'll be great. I, you've piqued my curiosity so much with these great questions, and I'm so curious to know what my fellow colleagues would say to the question of what is it that you always wanted to do, and and why would you want to do that? And it would just be so interesting to see what emerged just from a question like that. So I'm I'm very inspired by your story. Is there anything else you want to share about before we go on to the recommendations? No, not yet. I mean, I think hopefully we'll have some more interesting projects to announce uh, later this summer. So definitely keep an eye on the website. Well, it'll just be a good excuse to have you back. So that's, that's perfect. That would be great. I would love it. Well, I know that we both share a passion for what I am going to recommend today because I was on Twitter uh, yesterday or the day before and saw that you... <laughs> We're out there recommending a new <laughs> podcast, and m- many people have heard about it because if you go to any of the podcast lists, it's generally number one or number two these days, and it is called S-Town, and it is from the producers of Serial and This American Life, 
And it's wonderful. And I just wanted to play actually a little clip. It's just about a minute long from, it's actually the very first part of episode one or what they call chapter one. And then you and I can chat a little bit about it because I know we both have a, a, a real interest in what they talk about here. So here is a little bit of chapter one of S-Town. When an antique clock breaks, a clock that's been telling time for 200 or 300 years, fixing it can be a real puzzle. An old clock like that was handmade by someone. It might take away the time with a pendulum, with a spring, with a pulley system. It might have bells that are supposed to strike the hour, or a bird that's meant to pop out and cuckoo at you. There can be hundreds of tiny individual pieces, each of which needs to interact with the others precisely. To make the job even trickier, you often can't tell what's been done to a clock over hundreds of years. Maybe there's damage that was never fixed, or fixed badly. Sometimes entire portions of the original clockwork are missing, but you can't know for sure because there are rarely diagrams of what the clock's supposed to look like. A clock that old doesn't come with a manual. So instead, the few people left in the world who know how to do this kind of thing rely on what are often called witness marks to guide their way. A witness mark could be a small dent, a hole that once held a screw. These are actual impressions and outlines and discolorations left inside the clock of pieces that might have once been there. They're clues to what was in the clockmaker's mind when he first created the thing. I'm told fixing an old clock can be maddening. You're constantly wondering if you've just spent hours going down a path that will likely take you nowhere, and all you've got are these vague witness marks, which might not even mean what you think they mean. So at every moment along the way, you have to decide if you're wasting your time or not. Anyway, I only learned about all this because years ago, an antique clock restorer contacted me, John B. McLemore, and asked me to help him solve a murder. I get goosebumps on that one. (laughs) (laughs) It is so beautiful. It's such a good show. And I wonder if you might reflect just for a minute or two on on witness marks and how they they connect your own thinking about your work and your life. Yeah, that is such a a beautiful opening for an incredible podcast. Honestly, I don't think I've heard anything that good ever on a podcast series. I highly recommend it, too. Um, yeah, it, that is the perfect analogy, I think, to students, you know, these clocks and students also having these witness marks and these lived experiences that are unique to each one of them. And, you know, they can talk, right? They can tell the stories of those, of those marks, of those witness marks. And those are things that if we can surface those, we can perhaps, you know, design education more optimally for that group of students that's in our midst at that point in time. And I, I think that that description really maps so perfectly in my mind to complexity and this idea that, you know, if for one class of students, we have a set of witness marks and a set of lived experiences that make that unique. And as soon as you have a different set of students in a class the very next year, it's a very different dynamic. It's a different environment. And the teaching has to adjust and adapt to that, to the latent capacity of the room to you know, the knowledge they have coming into the place. How do you surface all that? How do you get the most out of that learning experience as a, as a community? It's great. It's brilliant. I once had a, a leader in a group who would do icebreakers pretty regularly of having each person in the group share a scar that they had and how they got that scar. And I love that as an icebreaker because it allows you to choose something that's not very personal, of course. I mean, it could just be, oh, I, you know, scrape my elbow or whatever, but it does allow you to learn a lot about people. And I just love that sort of that 
image of whether it's witness marks or scars and just recognizing that we all have them. And I just think it helps us honor each other a little bit more in the work that we're doing and that when I forgot who many people have said this, but just the idea if we're going to choose between assuming the best or worst of other people, it's it's always a great idea to assume the best and to recognize just people are doing the best that they can. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And I think it it's accepting of a vulnerability that allows for openness and learning. And I think that's also a great thing. Kristen, what do you have to recommend for us today? In addition to us both sort of <laughs> recommending us to go and listen, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yours is far better than mine. Oh, I doubt um, it. But the, but I was going to recommend a book that um, honestly can be a bit of a tough read by the end of it. It starts out well, and then it sort of rambles into the stream of consciousness. But uh, it really situates for me the reasons why I'm interested in innovation, why I'm interested in accounting for complex domains of learning, uh, why I'm interested in, in really complex adapted systems in higher education in general. And it's called Anti-Fragile by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. He also wrote The Black Swan, which I think he's most famous for. But he really starts to dive into this concept of of how you embrace chaos, how you embrace disorder, and that makes you stronger. So anti-fragile, that definition is not resilient and robust in when you have something, some event, some sort of black swan hit you and you're able to get back to the point you were before. This is actually the concept of embracing that kind of uh, chaos and disorder on a regular basis so that you become stronger, so that that's really your, your disposition, your position of strength all the time. And that's why I like innovation and I like R&D and I like this idea of disruption, although I don't think disruption is the right word, in higher education because it's not about breaking the things that we love about education and about institutions, but about preserving those institutions. I personally believe in institutions as pillars of democracy. I don't want to see those go away. I don't like the kind of disruption that's happening uh, in Silicon Valley and politically. But if we can embrace this concept of anti-fragility and embrace this idea of taking on experiments that push us, then ideally our institutions are anti-fragile and they are uh, best suited to deal with big changes that I do think are coming our way. So that's the book I would recommend with a, you know, with a little bit of a caveat that it could kind of derail toward the end. <laughs> but it sounds like it's worth it. It's worth the work that, that we might go through. I think so. I hope so. Um, I could be completely wrong about all this, but I, I really think, <laughs> I really think it's an interesting path to go down. And I, I think for the right reasons, hopefully, you know, it's, it's not seen as a threat, but as an opportunity. I love that even your style of giving a recommendation is very emergent. It's fun. It's fun to hear you. This is what it is. We'll see. It might be okay. Yeah. I love it. Well, I am so grateful to have been connected with you. And um, thank you for investing your time with this community. I I know we're going to get a lot out of the episode. And I'm looking forward to checking in with you later on in the year and seeing how things are going at Davidson and how some of these other projects come to fruition. Well, thank you so much. It's been a, a genuine pleasure talking with you, and I'm, I'm really excited about your podcast and following more of what's coming. Oh, this is another one of those episodes where my head feels like it's going to explode in the best way possible. <laughs> Thanks once again to Laura for connecting Kristen and I, and to Kristen for being on the show and investing your time in this community. Really appreciated getting to learn from you and hear more about your experience at Davidson. If you'd like to receive the links from the show notes that Kristen and I talked about today, as well as a blog post I write once a week on either teaching or productivity, you can subscribe at teaching 
in highered.com slash subscribe. And if you have any feedback on who might be a good future guest or a good future topic for a show, feel free to provide that information at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time. Oh, by the way, go after this, after the theme music's over, because I know you don't want to miss it. Go listen to S-Town. It's really good. (laughs) 